Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Oz Arshad. And I'm Marcus Thomas. And we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help bridge the gap. We've got an amazing guest this week. It's a writer-director based in Glasgow, Scotland. Her first funded short was called Meet Me By The Water and was commissioned by Scottish Film Talent Network and premiered at Edinburgh International Film Festival. And with a feature based on the same short, further developed under the mentorship of Olivia Stewart and was also shortlisted for Sundance Writers Lab. They've also gone on to gain several TV directing credits as a part of BBC's The Break and Sparks and also on children's TV shows Princess Mirabelle and Molly and Mac. And she hasn't stopped writing though. She wrote on the hit Channel 4 show We Are Lady Parts created by Nida Manzor and currently has several feature films in active development which have been done in partnership with the BFI and Film 4 and her producer Zorana Piggott. And it's just been announced that you're actually adapting Martin Six Smith's follow-up to Philomena, a family drama detective story and thriller titled Aisha's Gift, uh, which will be a, a six-part TV series, I believe. So basically, she's fucking sick. Welcome to the show, Raisa Ahmed. Um, I guess our first uh, question was, how did you get into film? How did this all come about? I mean, I guess the first thing to say is I, I wasn't the kid that dreamt about you know, writing or directing film. Not because I don't I, I don't think I didn't want to. I just don't think it ever felt like something that I could do. I come from a working class immigrant family. I think I went to the cinema like three times before I was at university because that's all we could afford. Um, and that was Jurassic Park, The Lion King and Aladdin. <laughs> and, and those are the three films I saw in the cinema before I hit university and I could use my bursary to then like spend every Friday at the cinema. I thought I was going to become a novelist. Um, I always knew that that story was something that was important to me. I was a kid that read like a book a day. Um, I was I was obsessed with story. I watched a lot of stuff. Um, and then I I did a undergrad in English and politics. Um, took a year out. Almost did teaching, which was the most insane idea because my big sister's a teacher and we're polar opposites. And I should have known I would have hated it. Give it a month, dropped out, and um, and then I just worked um, in my student job, which was doing like mortgage paperwork at a bank. So, guys, I know mortgages if you need some advice. Um, <laughs> and um, I I saved, I just saved, um, and I went back and I did a master's um, in literature, culture, and place. Now, I should say, my undergrads, I talked my university into letting me do a creative writing dissertation um, instead of like a, a, a usual research dissertation. And then when I was going back for my master's, I basically said to them, I want to come back, I want to do this master's, but I want to do a creative writing dissertation. So really, I was looking for structure within which to write, um, where, where I would be accountable to someone, where I would have deadlines. Um, and I did that. So I did that master's, which I paid for myself. Um, my undergrad, thankfully, I live in Scotland, so um, the Scottish government paid for it. And then as I was finishing my master's, I came across this apprenticeship um, called Second Light, and it ran in three places, one in London, 
one in Bristol and one in Glasgow and it only ran for one year so I think I got lucky that I got onto it and um, it was a year-long program one of the the people in charge of a man called Dale, Dale Corlett said to me you're a director like I'm not a director what are you talking about I'm a writer look and it's funny because when I then made Meet Me By The Water he just looked at me and he was like I told you so <laughs> so um so he kind of saw it before I did and I think the reason I didn't see it is because I just didn't see anyone that looked like me doing what I did and and I'd never been to film school and I was terrified of the technical stuff what what is your ethnicity race and not that it matters I'm just curious myself yeah I'm, I'm Pakistani did you get any pushback when you were kind of growing up with the choices of going into the art? Because um, maybe you were from a similar generation where it was like, well, no, you can only do the sort of like doctor, lawyer business. And arts wasn't even you know looked upon as a air speech marks real job. Yeah, I mean, I think so. When I when I was like, I don't know, like eight or something, I remember saying to my dad I was going to be a private detective <laughs> because because I read a lot of Nancy Drew and I thought I wanted to be a private detective. And my dad was like, be a lawyer, you know, that that kind of makes sense and it sounds less dangerous. And so then I, I got it into my head that, OK, I'm going to be a lawyer. And actually, right up until I was applying for university, I was thinking about applying for law until a careers advisor said to me, you're going to mm. be bored at your brains. Like law is not mm. what you see on telly. I have four sisters. I'm, I'm from a house of girls. And my dad, um, he you know, when I turned 16, he said, go out and get a job. The minute I could learn to drive, he was like, right, you need to learn to drive. I did not want to learn to drive. And he made me learn to drive. And and actually now I couldn't be without that skill. So my dad is very much, you know, he was very much um, and still is kind of, what can you do to be independent and look after yourself? Because I'm not going to be here for the rest of your life. Um, and to what makes you happy. So I, I I did, you know, like obviously all of us kids from immigrant families, when we're, um, do you know, we're, we start in high school, we get that, right, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be a pharmacist, whatever else it might be, you know, secure nine to five jobs with good income. And I, I tried to do the sciences. I was rubbish at them, like absolutely rubbish at them. And then I applied for English and politics. And I think for a while, my dad was like, right, she's going to become a politician. <laughs> <laughs> and you know I was protesting and that's that's a part of politics I loved and then I did English and then when I almost became a teacher my dad was kind of like I, I remember he was dropping me off um that first day and I was miserable and he just went you know if you don't want to do this you can go do the media stuff and I just looked at him and went you could have told me that like last week and I wouldn't be going in and I just said to him you know just let me try it out and and let's see how it goes um and it and it's funny because i think for the first few years um when people asked what is it that i do he would refer to my job at the bank um <laughs> uh, my mum didn't my mum would my mum would mention the bank but she go and she's a writer what what one second sorry your mum would say that you're a writer as, as well yeah my my mum got it i mean the thing is me and my dad are the same person and so i think part of my dad's fear was maybe he knew his own nature. So my dad came to Scotland when he was 15. He was the guy that always had the cameras, you know, and, and he would go to the cinema after work with his with his brother. And, you know, when he came here and he, he finished high school, 
he thought about applying to college and he wanted to uh, be a TV engineer or something. Someone within the community said, no, no, there's no point in going to college and um, just just work. And I think that's one of his biggest sort of regrets is that he listened to them and he didn't go ahead and do what he did. For him, that's why it was so important that me and my sisters all had the opportunities that we would have. And it, and, and it's not that sort of, you know, typical like, you finish your education, you must get married now, you must do this, you must live a traditional life. My parents are my biggest supporters now. Like my dad will pick me up any time of night. I ask him to pick me up. And and so like kind of jumping back to what we were talking about before, you know, um, he 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 wouldn't it took him a while to kind of talk about my job in terms of writing. But that with your with your parents, race is, is crucial because Look, obviously, Marcus, I've spoken to you about it many times over the last couple of years. Um, and one one thing that you talk about is that moment, Marcus, when you would sit and watch films with your dad and he'd say to you, always look at the character. What is the character doing? I, uh, first thing you need to do is figure out the plot. And then, Ray, so you just talked about how important it was for your parents to support you. You know, learning that there is some sort of a push from when you're younger into that and that support is so crucial. It's so crucial to come from parents. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think you know all parents are scared. You know, they they they're all terrified of the thing they don't know, and and so many of us come from families and communities where the arts has just not been a thing. You know, there's rarely been art created for them, let alone opportunities for them to be within those spaces, like an immigrant family or a working class family. Um, money is such a big thing, isn't it? It's like that ability to just even keep a roof over your head. For my dad, what he said to me when I, I dropped out of teaching was, you know, just do what makes you happy. And I had, I think, not long before that kind of told him that I struggled with depression, like he was the first person that I told about that. And And, and at that time, I was going through a phase where, like, I'd just be sitting at the dinner table and I just burst into tears. <laughs> And and he'd just be like, oh, there she goes again. But but not in a not in a dismissive way, but in a kind of like, okay, she's doing her thing. We just need to let her do her thing, and and she'll kind of she'll work through it. But then that's why I guess film was so important to me. Like I remember when I started my apprenticeship, it was this sort of feeling of like it all made sense now, and and this is what I was supposed to be doing. Like I enjoyed it. I felt like I was good at it. Um, and I was surrounded by people who had the same sort of passions and interests as me and the same drive as well. And it and the thing that, that kind of, I guess, changed for my dad was I was invited onto this live show on, on BBC Scotland and it was around the time, um, I think it was something around Shonda Rhimes. And it was literally, I'm telling you, like a, a one minute segment, right? And I was on telly and I was talking about this thing. And I remember I came home and I could see something had changed in like my dad's understanding of what I was doing. And I think what he saw was, hold on, she's making some sort of impact on the wider world. So, you know, and now I'm lucky I'm in a situation where half the time they don't know what I'm doing, you know, not from like lack of me telling them or them wanting to know. There's no point in us explaining to people, well, yeah, I'm developing this thing. It's going to take like five years before you actually see anything it's more that you just kind of go yeah I'm working with these people and I'm working with these people and um sometimes they'll be curious and ask questions at other times it's just like okay cool go do your thing so I guess what you touched on there was the uh 
what seems to be, especially in, in this conversation, the, the, the teaching to filmmaking pathway. But <laughs> at that point, what did you think the pathway into the industry was? I mean, I, I honestly didn't know. I think when I took that year out between my undergrad and my master's, I did send out like a bunch of emails and CVs. And actually, when I was doing my master's, and, and I still had about four months of it left, I got an interview with, I think, Endemol to be an assistant on some like game show or something. So they were willing to offer me that job. Um, and it was Michael Wilson, who's now kind of the guy in charge of Outlander, who interviewed me. But I would have had to start pretty much straight away. And I was like, no, I need to finish my master's. I'm paying for this thing. I need to I need to finish it. And also I wanted to finish that piece of writing. And so I ended up turning that down, which, you know, everything happens for a reason. Because the thing is, I think if I'd done that, I could be working in factual instead. In that same way, like when I was coming to the end of um, Second Light, I came down to London. I had a like a two-week, um internship at impossible pictures who make like primeval and they were making sinbad at the time and um i came back to glasgow and they called me back down for three weeks paid work and uh, just to cover someone and then they offered me a job as a drama development assistant <laughs> and i i pissed everyone off um that that was like you know running the second light program in glasgow because i turned it down well i got them to up the salary first because the salary was ridiculous and I was saying, I'm I'm making more in my part-time job and you're asking me to re relocate to London and all of those costs. But then, you know, they, they weren't willing to up it to like a livable wage, um, which, you know, they had their budgets, that's fine. But also my grandpa had died um, like six months before that. And my gran was coming back from Pakistan. And um, I just had this, you know, I remember having a, call with my my dad talking about it and saying you know I could take this job I could work my way up in in drama I, I could become like a producer and exec that sort of thing easily but my time with my gran is so limited like I don't know how much longer she's going to be around also I want to write like I I you know I I love helping other people with their stuff but I want to write and it might seem crazy that I'm turning this down but my gut says I need to turn this down and I need to come back to Glasgow. So so that's what I did. And then um, I got on to the residency program up here called The Nine, which is how I wrote the feature version of Meet Me By The Water. So it all kind of, it all works out. But one of the kind of promises I made myself when I decided to enter this industry was this industry cannot become my life. You know, I still I still need to have a full life outside of my work because I have an addictive personality and it could totally become my life but my family is important my friends are important having a life is important um, and our industry is really really bad for expecting us yep. to not have any of yep. that and we sort of like cave and <laughs> and because it's our passion yeah like I mean that's kind of what happens right it starts as a hobby so it's usually done on the side of your main life and then once it becomes your main job, it becomes all of it rather than <laughs> the balance. Yeah, but but you know, it's like being freelance has been, so I, I basically, I worked part-time 
then eventually in film education. So I actually developed and, and coordinated the BFI Film Academy in Glasgow for about four and a half years. So I was doing that part time and I was writing part time and then I was starting to direct as well. So I was I was working a lot. But when my grand got sick um, about six years ago and she had to go into hospital for like three weeks, I was able to just put everything to a stop. And I basically lived at the hospital with her. And then, you know, a month later, she within the space of a week, she was gone. But I was able to basically just go, I, I'm doing absolutely nothing. It's all about her. I was in charge of her like palliative care at home and all of that stuff. And and the fact that I could do that, I think, was so important to me because at the end of the day, like I, I feel a lot of the reasons why I tell stories is because my ancestors never got to have a voice and and they made all these sacrifices and they made these journeys to allow me to be in a position to live my dreams. You know, I, I always, I'm always thinking about the people that came before me, especially since my, my grandparents were illiterate. They couldn't read or write, but my grandpa took us to the library, like as much as we wanted to go. And, you know, you don't, you don't exist just because you exist. You exist because of like an army of people that have allowed you to be where you are with all the support they've Absolutely given you. Absolutely standing on the shoulders of everyone. Um, and that's not something you'll regret either. Like, I think that's the thing is what people say, the people who are on their deathbed to go morbid, but they, they all say like they wish they'd spent less time working, more time with those around them. So it's, it's great that you kind of took the time to do that. We're just curious about, you know, where do your stories come from? I mean, watching some of your work from the links that you sent, um, you know, there was a very touching film. Um, I, mean, I think it was Meet Me by the Water, the one about the grandparents. Um, and, and, I, and I could tell just even by how you'd framed the main character that it was it was you. <laughs> I had an idea for a film which was Meet Me by the Water, but it was a different version of Meet Me by the Water. And I, I, I wrote like 40 pages of it and I sent it to Olivia and I was like, I'm stuck, I'm stuck, I don't know what to do. And, um, and she, <laughs> she turned around to me and we had a Skype um, and she goes, can I just say you're more interesting than your film? I was just like, oh, I, I don't know how to take that. Like, what are you saying? My film is, is shit. And, and she just went, stop thinking and just write. I was like, okay, fine. And, and the reason she was saying that is because the loss of my grandpa was such a huge impactful thing for me because I was very close to my grandparents. Like I grew up living with them and then they moved out when we were teenagers because they were like, you guys need your own space. But I, you know, I would go over almost daily and I would take them to their appointments and my grandpa would tell me stuff sometimes, you know, little stories. And so I was very close to them. I was, I was probably also the only grandkid that could tell them off. And, and they had like 32 grandkids, right? Um, and so I, I had this really special relationship with them. And my grandpa, um, and, and it came at the time when I was doing Second Light. So we were like a week away from shooting the first film I wrote. And they went to Pakistan. And um, my grandpa was like, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll see you when I get back. And, and the thing is, before they went, and I, I was going over a little bit less because I was just busy with prep and, and, you know, film stuff. You know how it gets when you're prepping for something. And then his, we got a phone call like in the middle of the night, two days before shoot. And he died and it was really unexpected. And so it was this weird thing of like, we lost him, but we weren't there. 
So we didn't we didn't have the ability to fully process it. And he was like the first big loss in terms of that generation for us. And then I, I couldn't really process it because I think a part of my head was like, oh, he's just still on holiday. Like he's going to come back. He's still on holiday. And so what Meet Me By The Water then became was me processing this thing I was doing in my life, which was I was entering this industry that nobody else in my family had ever done and doing something my family had never done. And I was terrified. But at the same time, I was going, hold on a second. My illiterate grandfather came to another country where he never spoke the language and he built a life for himself. And I'm scared of entering an industry. Like, what is wrong with me? And um, so it was, yeah. So I was processing my decision to be in the film industry. I was processing the loss of my grandfather. And I was also like thinking about how my family came to be here because my family's been here since my great grandfather's generation. But me and my sisters are like, and my cousins are the first generation actually born here. So it's like this funny thing of our roots are deep, but you know, we're only just kind of starting to like be Scottish Pakistani, I guess. So the film came from that. So the feature itself is about Amara trying to make peace with the fact that she wants to go off and have this life and this career but it means that she's leaving her family and she feels responsible for her family and she loves them so that I submitted to Sundance on a whim and that got long listed and I was just like oh my god this is like the first feature I've ever written and before that I'd only ever written one short film so I was a bit mad um and then people kept saying who's gonna direct this I was like okay well I don't know um and that that's what kind of made me go oh crap I'm gonna have to do it because I can't, I can't think of anyone else that could. And that's, so that film is the reason I started directing is because that question was being asked. And when we made the short, I had to think about how do I distill the feature into a short, which is hard, guys, don't do it. Like, don't start from a feature and then try and make a short, it's hard. Um, but for me, the most important thing was this relationship between her and her grandfather and the fact that she had to make this journey that paralleled her grandfather's journey. And those were the things that I wanted to pull into it. And language was the other thing for me. Like I was really um, sick of seeing stuff with immigrant communities where everyone happened to speak English. And, and I just thought that's not the reality. In my house, like I would speak Punjabi to my grandparents and they'd speak that back to me. But me and my dad talk to each other in English and I'll talk to my mum in English and she'll reply in Punjabi. And there's such a there's such a beauty of all of those languages kind of mixing in that way. So I always kind of think about what it is that I want to try and say. So like my, my other feature I've got um, with Zorana is a road trip feature that actually came about after my grand died, which is about um, two sisters that drive their, their grand from Scotland to Pakistan. Um, that partly came from the fact that my dad and my uncle and my grandpa drove from Scotland to Pakistan in like I think the 70s I don't I'm not sure like not as long as you would think yeah but loads loads of families were doing it back then um, because it was just cheaper and also I think you could just leave your car there and they could sell it and then you would fly back um, but he has some like mad stories and I remember growing up like listening to those stories and going I want to do that dad and he was like, no, no, you can't do that. It's not it's not the same as it used to be. So I think a part of me was like, well, how can I do this road trip? I'll make a film. I'll make a film. Um, so, so that comes from that. And then um, 
yeah, other projects, sometimes people come to me um, with ideas and it'll be something that I'll connect with on some level. Um, so, you know, we all have themes that we're interested in, themes that are our sort of thing. And and other things come from like conversations with friends. So like I'm developing at the moment um, this six part uh, rom-com, which I'm writing and I will be directing all six episodes as well. And that came from the fact that I was talking to like a bunch of friends about how difficult it is to date. Um, regardless of your background, but it just feels impossible to meet people because everything is on apps and and then there's this whole trend for like Muslim dating and and I just thought we have so many like really cool rom coms out there, but where's the Muslim women's experience? And so I just I I created something. So yeah, I I just um, some ideas come to you, some other people you know ask if you're interested and and it becomes a conversation. Um, and other stuff, yeah, it's deeper. It comes from stories that I feel need to be told for family reasons or in terms of like, like um, my film four project is a film I never thought I'd write. It's a World War One project, which um, is about Indian Muslim soldiers in World War One and the way in which they're manipulated. And it's a completely anti-war film. You know, people always go, oh, I, know, I didn't think you'd be writing a war film or you'd be writing a film full of men, <laughs> you know, because most of my films are female protagonists. Um, but it was, again, that was a newspaper article I came across. And I was just like, gosh, nobody knows about this. And I just was like, right, I need to tell this story. So, yeah, I think we just need to be open to what kind of comes to us. One of the questions that we got for you was, do you feel, you know, because of, you know, your background and obviously you wear a hijab do you feel that you are forced into a particular niche in this industry when it comes to telling stories i think you get approached more for like muslim stories absolutely and you know there there is a drive towards authenticity whether it's working or not we don't know yet um but the, the drive is there so you know you do get offered stuff that feels it feels like there's a reason you're offered it and it's because of your your ethnicity or your gender or your religion and for some people their disability or their sexuality or whatever else it might be and you know it's kind of jumping back to when I was doing Second Light I had this absolute fear I'm only in this industry because I tick a box like do I deserve to be here like that feeling that imposter syndrome is very present but then I was just kind of like hold on a second other people have had all these advantages why am I not taking advantage of an, an access you know a path that's being created for me so sometimes it is kind of a bit like well can I just have something fun and it's not related to my my ethnicity or my religion but most of the time it you know it's a case of well okay cool these characters don't exist I can do whatever I want with it and if you just let me do my version of it then then great we're winning I do get sent lots of very bad versions of things, though. <laughs> um, yeah, still, I mean, I and, and the thing is, the people that send it, like, they don't have bad intentions. They're just a bit naive. Um, and you some, especially, I think, Muslim stories, you kind of have to go, right, hold on a second. Um, this is actually a negative depiction. It's not it's not the the radical positive depiction you think it is. It's actually very negative and we don't need this story in the world at the moment. Um and and I and it, it becomes a conversation not just of I don't want to do it, but it becomes a conversation of me having to challenge them and go, why are you doing it? I, I use this phrase uh, sometimes that you know, saying, 
we as underrepresented communities often have to do the activism before we do the work. Um, and, and I still find myself doing a lot of that. So yeah, it doesn't bother me that much, but yeah, it happens. I mean, children's has been much more open. I'll have to say that. The stuff I've done in children's, you know, it, it's it's never come from a place of you're a person of color or you're Muslim or you're whatever else. It's just, we know you do children's, do you wanna do this thing? I was gonna to touch on that actually, um, about how you actually got your first TV directing credit. I know you kind of had the, uh, like the sparks in the break, um yes so the break was the first thing um and that was actually bbc writers room so i they knew me as a writer but they knew i directed as well so the break was being filmed in scotland that year and they contacted me so um it was a woman called angela galvin who worked there at the time and um she contacted me and she said we've got this one film and we need someone that can pull out a really good performance um, will you come in an interview? So I went and I met with her and I met with Gavin Smith, who was at the comedy unit at the time, who were the ones producing it. And and I got the job. And, and, and then it turned out that the writer of that film, Grace, was someone I had just met at a residency I did with um, CBBC just like a couple of weeks before that. So we had arranged to have a coffee anyway. And so when I had met her for coffee, I was like, um, do you know the news? <laughs> do you know that I'm going to be directing your thing? And she was really excited. So so Gloss was my first thing. Um, and that was like a one-day shoot. I had a, an amazing crew. I had tons of support. I was really scared of not getting my shot list right. Angela was great because she actually, she was like, I can put you in touch with another director who could look over your shot list for you. And the other director ended up being Nida Munzur, who I knew anyway. Um, and, you know, we kind of knew each other. And it was one of those things where she was able to just look over it um, and, and just be like, yeah, that's everything I do. And that's literally all I needed was someone to kind of go, that's everything I do. And it was a brilliant experience. Um, Gloss is disturbing. And and I still think it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Um, I see the DOP. Um, so George Geddes, who was the DOP on that, was also the DOP on Molly and Mac. And every time he sees me, he goes, we should have shot it in one. We should have just shot it in one because um, it was all handheld um and we could have shot it in one we didn't but we could have just on gloss it did it did feel like like it was a one like a one thing like there was one way when the camera's coming around behind there then Ooh. it cuts to actually being forward and i thought maybe they've actually yeah. shot this in one cut into it. Yeah. <laughs> just because we're getting around it i'm glad yeah no no we cut it no we, we didn't we didn't completely shoot it in one we could have right right um yeah. but and actually the original like cut of it was probably like five minutes longer than it is and then we, we built in all those jump cuts and we were just thinking about her sort of um, her headspace, you know, internally her starting to like unravel and, and this fragmentation. Um, and Ashley, who's who's the actress in it, she's known up here for a show called Scott Squad, which is like this comedy and she plays a police officer. So I think it's also people seeing her in that role was also very unexpected. Um, yeah, and then and then I was um I was writing on Molly and Max season two, and they actually approached me and they said uh, the producers and the exec at the time Sarah Harkins and the producer was Jane Baxter, um they approached me and they said look we know you direct as well, would you be interested in shadowing, and I was like yeah like of course I would give me all the opportunities to shadow that you can, 
And and what was really brilliant is then they were like, okay, great. Well, we'll pay you for it. Even better, yeah. You know, we we know that that doesn't always happen. So they they put in the application. The BBC have a diversity fund, guys. You can apply to that. We'll edit that bit out and keep that information to ourselves. <laughs> keep it yourself. Um, but they do have a diversity fund. So if you are an underrepresented talent, TV shows should be you know doing more mm. of what CBBC were doing. Um, so I I got to shadow. I think I got about ten days. And I was shadowing a writer called, sorry, a director called Adrian Mead, who I had met previously on a writing residency. And so Adrian and I already knew each other. So that felt quite easy. And then the plan had been that I would do shadowing on season two. And then in season three, I would direct an episode. But then the pandemic happened. <laughs> so they shot episodes, sorry, seasons three and four during the pandemic with a scaled back crew and because it's all set kind of in a 360 set they had to really limit the number of people um, and then when they got season five last year they just they called me they're like we're back to normal do you want to come in and do your episode so they never forgot about me and and so that that was really great in terms of that but but I guess between that season two shadowing and doing that episode of, Mo of uh, Molly and Mac which by the way is like a 14, 15 minute episode, two songs plus a fashion show. We shot that in just under two days. Wow. No way. Yeah, it's, and you know, it's a credit to the cast and the crew and what a machine that system is. And, and those kids are amazing. So in between those two things happening, obviously we had the pandemic, but just before the pandemic, um, CBBC had contacted me from Salford they were making sparks, which were these teen monologues. So what they were what they were aware of was teenagers don't watch CBBC. It's like they've aged out of it, but they do watch a lot of stuff streaming and and you know and online. So they were making these um, teen monologues. Um, some of them were with other production companies, and they were making four in house. So I remember I like interviewed for it a week before lockdown, and <laughs> I had just been in London. And then I went to Manchester, to Salford, and people on the train, some of them were masking, people had hand sanitizer. It was this really weird thing of like, I think I was still a little bit in denial that this was actually going to come into Scotland. And uh, I got the job. So in order to get the job, what I had to do was I had to send them a pitch deck. I made a, a mood reel and I had an interview. I got the job. The plan was to film like within a couple of months. And then the pandemic hit. We were stood down. And then as soon as the first lockdown lifted, we shot in, I think it was like September 2020. We didn't have any COVID protocols for filming. In fact, on day one, we lost our script supervisor, our art department. <laughs> we didn't, we had a majorly skeleton crew. It was chaotic on day one, but we shot two, those two monologues over five days. It was very challenging, but it was such a good experience to just have to go in and do that and I think when you come from short film you're used to having to make things work um, and I did all my prep remotely so all my prep was done from home I had gone down the week before for one day for the recce um, but yeah so I went down the day before the shoot I drove back home the day after the shoot and I worked with the DOP Caroline who worked on Meet Me By The Water so I was able to take her with me so we we kind of had already worked with together beforehand um, and then not long after that um, I was contacted about Princess Mirabel and uh, Sarah Harkins who was the exec on season two of Molly and Max she was the exec on Mirabel as well 
um, and they offered me an episode of that. And Mirabel was its own challenge because it had green screen. Um, so you have our Tallulah, the lead actress, was playing two roles. So I had never, I had never worked with that sort of situation. It was an amazing shoot. It was really fun. I worked with really cool people. I came in on the last week. Everyone was exhausted. Um, it had been a really challenging shoot. Um, and I just plied them all with sugar. And they were great. I was just buying them sweets and donuts. And um, it was really, really fun. But the thing with working with kids, because the thing is, I, I don't want to I don't want to be doing children's for the rest of my life. Like that's not that's not the goal. But if you can if you can work in children's with the limitations of children's hours, um, you know, having to think about things like when we did like the fashion show, one of the actresses the pose that she held at the end of the the walkway I had to check whether it was like a gang sign or, or 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 if it would be problematic so you have to think about those sort of things and um, there's this phrase imitative behavior you need to really think about are is your audience going to imitate what you've got your actors doing and, and then are the parents going to complain to to the channel and um, so so if you can balance all of that and the the really kind of tight timelines and so on you can do anything and the thing that I found both on Mirabelle and on Molly and Mac is there were on both shows there were two actresses that were much newer both young black actresses the other directors all commented on both shows about how I was the one that they were asking the most questions of they were talking to me they were engaging I think that's why it's so important to actually have really diverse crews because if you're working with actors that are much newer, that are from other, you know, from underrepresented backgrounds, and if they don't see someone like them, then that actually might hinder their performance. Be less comfortable. How long did you have to shoot uh, Mirror and Belle, out of, out of curiosity? Mirabel, sorry. Mirabel, we had a week. Yeah, we, we okay. had a week, so much longer. So that's why um, when I went on to Molly and Mac, I was told, okay, you're going to have three days. And I was like, okay, yeah, I can do that. And then when they did the schedule, they're like, yeah, it's kind of like just under two days. That's crazy. Like, okay, that's fine. We'll make it work. A single camera? No, we had we had two cameras. That helped somewhat. And we had two cameras on um, Mirabelle as well. Um, we didn't use them all the time because with green screen, you have lots of locked off shots. So, you know, you're, you're kind of limited with things. Obviously, you've got just under two days to do sort of like, you know, this big sort of like end mm -hmm. of episode like performance and you've got the song and everything. Did you strategically plan to get use the second camera to get coverage or did you just think i'm going to use the a as the master and the b is going to get me whatever you know anything bonus they, they used both for coverage so both of them so you know we might have been in a wide on camera a and in a close-up on camera b and the, the great thing is a lot of the adult actors they don't need many takes some of them are like one take we're done move on it's usually with the kids that you, you need a little bit more I think when you're you're directing on something that's already established you know it has a style and you can watch all the previous episodes and you know when I did my shot list I um I was my episode was within the block that Adrian was di directing so you know we we prepped together and so I was able to kind of go well here's my shot list and he had a quick look over it and he asked me you know do you want me to be on set while you're shooting your episode it's up to you and I said yeah do you know what come on just come on set just in case um in terms of the the feel of the show so that I don't I don't suddenly make a decision that's going to take us away from it 
Um, and and you know he just silently sat there and he was like yep every single shot you're doing is every single shot I do like I I don't need to say anything or do anything you're you're getting it all absolutely fine the other thing I think to remember is even if you as a director are only coming on for one episode or a few episodes the rest of your your crew have been there the entire time your DOP is sometimes the best person to go to in terms of things like stylistically is the continuity there are we am I suddenly doing something very radically different possibly your your script supervisor as well but your script supervisor might change from block to block but yeah your your DOP and and that's the thing that I found was the rest of the crew were so brilliant in terms of keeping you right that the fact that we were shooting in two days it wasn't daunting the other thing with a show like molly and mac is every episode has two songs in it there's the idea song and the oops song and what they also have is like a bank of like footage for the, those episodes mm. so i also knew that if i ran out of time to get the song stuff either i could come in another day and get my song stuff or okay. i could use some of that stuff that already existed so I, I had a bit of a safety net there, but we got everything and we we finished on time. And it was like the hottest day of the year when we were shooting mm. as well. One of those days. Um, I think I had one moment where I was like, I almost had a meltdown. Like 10 people were asking me the same thing. And I just had to go, give me a minute. Mm. Just let me think this through and I'll have an answer for you. Um, and that was the only point at which, and I think it was yeah. just... It was so hot. How does your stress manifest on set, Ray? So, like, when any, every director manifests and manages stress internally different, sometimes it comes through and it's external. What's your? Everyone I work with go, you're always so calm on set. Like, you never seem to panic. You never seem to worry. And I kind of go, I wish you could see inside because, you know, the panic is there. I just, I'm just very aware that if I panic, then everyone's going to panic. So, if I feel a bit stressed, for me, I know it's about problem solving. I need to go talk to someone, whether that's the DOP or my my AD or, you know, the producer. If, you know, if I'm stressed, it will be, I will be stressed about something. Um, but I, what I've realized is I, like the world is ending. <laughs> also, when I made Meet Me By The Water, that was the most stress, stressful, traumatic experience of my life. I think I have gotten used to, knowing what that feels like and um, because it was uh, i mean small budget so we had 10k in terms of shorts but also my producer really let me down on that I, just lots of things not working through like me as a director being up till 2am trying to get things to fall into place the day before a shoot just because i think the producer wasn't managing stress properly and and so I'm glad it happened on that because I think if you have those experiences early on, you learn what you can and can't manage. Just to circle back on the the children's TV situation, how you direct children on, on set. Just get on their level. I mean, for me, the thing that I think works is one, everything is about trust, regardless of whether you're working with children or adults, you know, they need to be able to trust you. And I think for kids that trust comes from knowing that you're not the scary grown up that's you know yes you're going to be directing them and you're going to be working with them but you need to find what their language is 
Um, so like on Mirabelle, our, our girls on that, you know, they became this tight little unit. They were making like TikTok dance videos and they were collecting like stickers and, and Beanie Babies and stuff. So um, and I, I caught on to that. So I brought them stickers one day. Um, on the last day of shoot, I gave them all these little Beanie Babies in between. So like when camera was just setting up, I would just go into the green room and I would just be talking to them just about random nonsense, you know, the stuff they're into. And, you know, I think that really helped. If your actors have different mm -hmm. levels of experience, um, they will probably also have mm -hmm. different levels of confidence. Um, some of them might come from a background where they've had some acting training or, you know, um, on Mirabelle, our, our lead actress, her mum was an act is an actress and she was her chaperone so she was able to really put in that work with her whereas the the actress that played the best friend her chaperone was just a chaperone so I knew I didn't have to worry about our lead I ha I was thinking about the best friend and going okay so how do I speak her language how do I get some of these emotions out of her and it's often not talking about the script necessarily so like if she had to be scared it's not, you know, your character is scared here because of X, Y, and Z. It's more talking about her experiences of being scared, you know, what, and, and giving her something real to kind of hold on to as well. Um, the thing we've got to remember is kids can't read between the lines often of a script. So that's the sort of stuff that you need to make sure that you go through with them and you explain to them um, and, and, and you don't do it all in one go. You kind of, you do it as and when you need to but you know other things like I would tell them what sort of shot we were getting so if it was a close-up I would tell them it's just a close-up this is what we're going to see just so that they felt that they were being given the same information that an adult actor would be given you know because at the end of the day that respect all should be the same um, and then energy levels that's your other thing um, with kids is at what point are the energy levels the highest do you have scenes where you require more energy from them and, and how do you then schedule them? Um, are they staying up all night playing video games? And if they are, you make sure they're not doing that. So it's, it's yeah. you become their friend in a way, you know? Um, and and you just, you, you let them know that they can trust you. They're fun to work with because they don't worry too much about stuff. They just kind of want to do the thing that... Yeah that you ask them to do, yeah. And are you physically like, when it comes to the blocking of the scene and being the technical stuff of like moving them towards camera, like positioning them and stuff, are you literally being like, stand here, walk here, end there, or? Honestly, just the same way I would work with adults. Um, you know, I, the thing is they pick up very quickly things like blocking and and the reasons why they do things what was really brilliant like on Mirabelle Tallulah who was our lead actress she was amazing I didn't have to reset her half the time she would like if she fluffed a line she would just go oh, okay hold on just gonna reset and she would just reset herself and it would just be like okay great you're like you're doing my job for me so so some of them really take to it I think the other thing is if they've never been on a set before and they're curious about things you know what you know what's the purpose of the monitor what you're seeing through that all of that stuff like let them have a bit of fun and see some of that stuff if you have time because that gets them more comfortable with the space as well so i think when i met you it was in like 2017 maybe um on the b3 
Media Talent Lab, which I was on. Yeah, I remember back then you were you were kind of you had that World War One story um, in development. I just got in the call from Film Four on the lab. But yeah, I, I guess why why I'm bringing this up is that that was 2017, and it's now 2023, and that film still hasn't been made. What's the journey? <laughs> yeah, I was keen to like hear about your sort of experiences of like development and and writing and getting projects like through and and yeah, dig into that a bit. Yeah, I mean, that project is quite a complex one just because when we got into development, um, so that actually started before that a couple of years when, so I came across the article, then I did a lab with Broadway Cinema in Nottingham and it was Caroline Cooper Charles and Anna Seifert Speck that ran um, this programme called Adapt to Film. You would come out of it with a treatment, like a solid treatment that you could take places. Um, and off the back of that, I met Zorana um, and we worked on it a little bit together and then we got picked up by Film 4. It was Sam Lavender that was there at the time. Sam actually left about a year into the process and we were lucky to be kept on because what happens when an exec leaves is like they, they don't really keep many of their projects on because projects are tied to execs. Um, and then we started working with Ben Corrin and Max Park um, at Film 4 who are our, our execs now. So I guess talking about the about the process, so the formal process is normally you've got your treatment, you've got your first draft, you've got your first draft revisions, you've got your second draft and you've got second draft revisions. That doesn't mean that's actually your first draft and that's actually your second draft. Technically, like it, it's your 50th draft, but you're submitting it like here's here's the first draft we're sharing with, with you as a company. And at each stage, there's like a cutoff. You can say great, thanks for, for developing it with me up to this point, but actually I think I want to move away now from you guys. Or they can turn around to you and say, yeah, we, we've reached the point we can reach together and, and we're off now. So so there's always that like terrifying thing of, okay, I might have a contract for all of these stages, but at any point it could be gone. We have been very lucky that the process has for the most part been really positive it's just been slow um and that's the thing that you don't realize until you're in the business <laughs> when we're starting out there's like this sense of urgency to everything like we must get it done really fast but then when you're actually in development on things you realize that everything is really slow just because people have so much that they're across so we're at a point where i need to do another polish draft sort of thing of the script um and then we're hoping to get a director attached it's got an energy to it that I've brought and I think it now needs a director with a different type of energy that will then elevate it. So I'm hoping that by the end of this year, we'll have a director attached and we'll be kind of pushing forward with it. But it, it just takes the time it takes. A lot of it, you end up just waiting to hear back on things. And, and you know, just for the audience, like obviously when you get development, right, you, mm. get, you, you, you get some money for it. Yes. Is it like a is it like a record contract where it's like you it's an advance and you have to pay it back or anything like that? So basically, it's quite complex. Um, what you have is you have set fees for each stage, um, and then you've got your fee that you would get on first day of principal photography. But there's often like a floor and a ceiling to that. So there's an absolute minimum you could get, and there's a maximum you could get. That doesn't count in like royalties and stuff like that that come off the back of that and then what you would often have in a contract like that is what they might say is the first day of principal photography fee is 
X amount minus what you've already been paid. So you don't have to pay it back, but you won't get the full like sort of chunk of like that first day of principal photography money. But the contracts are really funny because they have to like think of everything. So like when I was signing my contract, there was stuff about sequels and prequels and TV versions and, you know, all of this stuff. And I was I was just like, oh, my God, like, do I need to think about this? But it's just so that absolutely everything is covered. So, you know, even something like if there's a remake and I don't if I don't write the remake, I would still get a percentage of the remake. Yeah, it's 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 mad. So you didn't have a, a, an agent at that point. So how did you no. get eyes across it to make sure that you were not getting shafted? I have an amazing producer. Zorana Piggott is has been my sort of like unofficial agent when it comes to that. This is why good producers are so important. One of the most transformative things for me as a newer writer was getting a producer who was so much more experienced than me was also a really good person and was just ensuring that I was taken care of. So actually, when she came on board, my initial thing was, right, let's write the draft of the script. And she said, no, 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 you're not writing a, a page of the script until you get paid to write it. So she's like the first producer that had said to me, no, you're not going to go off and write this huge document. We're going to pay you to write the document. So, so that was the first thing. And then secondly, film four, um, so we went in, had a meeting, and kind of on the spot, he was like, yep, I, I want I want to take on this film. I mean, he's really interested in war stuff, as it is. So the, the way that we were taken care of was, one, Zoran is amazing, and two, Sam is so good that when we got our deal, they also helped us pay for a lawyer to look over all the paperwork. So, and they, they gave us a deal that was a good deal. It wasn't, you know, you're brand new and we're going to shaft you or anything like that. I, I've not I've not had a moment where I've thought that I'm being pushed to do something I don't want to do. And the other thing is, in that first conversation that we had, they also were like, and we know you direct as well. And when you're ready to make your first feature, we can talk about making a short film together. The thing is, like, I think companies like Film4 and and probably BBC Films as well, they're not just investing in a project, they're investing in you. And that's what you want. You want people investing in your longer journey because our projects can, you know, be amazing or they can completely fail. And you don't want someone just to be like, yeah, sorry, that failed and and, and we're out. It's more, we're here for the long term. I think as well that, you know, the, our whole thing on this podcast is obviously about um, and getting you know good people like yourself on to share the pathway so that people can um, somehow have some sort of a torch because there is no pathway. And what's quite evident, Razor, from your kind of journey in is how important it is that the arts are funded and schemes are funded. And, you know, there's those opportunities um, that you can take advantage of because you've gone on to different schemes, you've done different things because you've had the talent, but you need to get to where you want to get to. And even like the B3 thing where you and Marcus both met. like I didn't even have a short film at that time, is what I was saying. I was like pre-no exposure. You know, you mentioned Ca- Caroline Cooper-Charles. I've just come off a lab myself that she led. You know, it's so important that we have these, that there's money in the arts for schemes and that, because when you come from a working class background, you don't have money to just like do films and stuff. Do you know what I mean? don't have money to do that you need that it's so important yeah and 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 that's why like i i sometimes kind of i worry that i've not made a lot of short films as a director 
And the reason I've not made a lot of short films as a director is because I refuse to ask people to work for free mm. um, because I'm so aware of what that means. Because the thing is, you know, people will be well, willing to do that. But at the end of the day, short films benefit mm. directors and, and potentially producers. They don't really yeah. benefit anyone else. I, I've, I've kind of developed as a director through this, this thing of taking those, those opportunities that have come in children's. I'm earning a wage. Everyone is being paid properly. I am within a system and I'm, and I'm with each job I say yes to, I ensure I say yes to, to it because I'm going to be learning something new on it or I'm going to be doing something I haven't done before. And, and it's building my confidence and my CV as a director, but I'm not having to ask other people to do stuff for me for free. And, and, you know, and I know people do like crowdfunding and things like that, but I just, you know, at the end of the day, the people that, that donate to crowdfunders and stuff are the people within your circles. I mean, there's all this research on that stuff. My friends aren't rich, <laughs> you know? I don't want my family mm. to be paying for me to make a film. Our industry should be working in a way where we should be able to develop our talent as directors without having to ask the people in our lives to pay for us to do that. And, and that's that's the biggest sort of, I guess, feeling of our industry is this this inability to develop that talent in a way where the people who financially can't afford to do it aren't being left behind. There's the whole weird lottery aspect to to the development if you don't have the resources to to develop, basically. And it can stunt you, it really can. It can, it absolutely can. And um, we, pay, we pay for the BBC. Why are the BBC not taking more risks? Mm, yeah. I hate that word risks because I often kind of go, well, we're not a risk. We're just not. We're just not um, yeah. tested in the way yeah. that they want us to be tested. But like that should be the place where our license fees are paying for that. Where we should be allowed to fail. We should be allowed to make some stuff that just is a is okay, or it doesn't quite hit the mark, or it's the thing that we need to get out of our system before we make that thing that's going to be amazing. So I I do feel like even with the short film schemes there's this pressure on us that it has to be it has to be the best thing we've ever made and it has to play a hundred festivals and and that I think is a thing that can sometimes just make people freeze up but that's born out of though isn't it that 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 because there hardly is anything to get funded for and like look if you look at some of the the, the schemes that are going on right now the amount of people that are, are going in to try and get that funding is ridiculous it's ridiculous and the amount of effort it takes to do that because there just isn't the the um the funding out there obviously the schemes which is great you know what i mean you you, you learn that so marcus marcus you've mentioned that b3 thing to me different things over mm. the uh, over mm. the years about mm. how that benefited you do you know what i mean you mentioned racer to me way before we got got race from the podcast so that was you know a benefit um, what I wanted to ask you now was, as a, a, a filmmaker, a, a person of colour filmmaker, you know, as a female, you wear a hijab, you have several projects in development. Do you think that the gatekeepers are understanding your work? And has it changed since when we first met to now? Um... <clears throat> just just for the benefit of the audience, Ra Race is now looking <laughs> out the window and she's really like, I'm, I'm thinking... like preparing her answer. Oh, that's a big, that's a big question. Um, and, and it kind of varies depending on if you're talking about film or TV. Both. Yeah. So Phil, I, I think film is, is an easier place to have your own voice 
but it's a harder place to get that film made in the long run. So you have more creative freedom to some extent, but there's also, you know, a higher chance your film won't get the budget you need or will never get made. With TV, by the time you're writing, you know, a full season of something, you know it's it's very likely going it, to, it's got a broadcaster involved or there's there's money behind it and all of that. But you probably have less creative control because there's so many other voices that come in. If we're talking about gatekeepers in terms of TV, usually that's the people, you know, at the top of the BBC or Channel 4 or STV, ITV and so on. And often the work isn't developed through them. The work is developed through production companies. I think a lot of production companies are brilliant now in terms of producers wanting to meet with talent that they, they truly believe in and they truly want to develop. And, you know, I've had some really, really positive experiences in terms of that development process. There was one project which, you know, hit, all the marks that a certain broadcaster was looking for, but they chickened out at the last minute because they weren't quite sure how to pitch it to the big boss. And I just kind of thought, well, let me pitch it. You know, that way it's like, why are you pitching it? Let me pitch it. But that, you know, that is what it is. And, and, and I'm not the only person that happens to. I've also heard stories from other creatives, writers, writer directors, and so on, where they might take a project to a broadcaster um, you know, it might be a South Asian story or a Muslim story or a black story or whatever else it might be. And the response is usually, yeah, but we already have yeah, our story yeah, from yeah. that community. We've already got one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that space is filled. Come back to us next year. Um, so that, from what I hear, is still happening. I've not had that response myself, but I hear that that is still happening. With film, my experiences in film have been mainly positive. The BFI system actually has been trickier than the film four system when i developed my short film like when with meet me by the water um now it's very much about an older male family member supporting a younger female family member to do something huge with her life and one of one of the execs was like so you know there should be an argument with her dad and i was like no there shouldn't the dad's barely in the film like why am i why am i bringing an argument with her dad but that's what they sort of thought it should be. And I remember also I was um, developing uh, an, another sort of a feature through public funding. And one of the bits of feedback was for me to watch this film. And I was like, what's the film? And so this, this was my, my road trip feature. Two, two women driving their gran from Scotland to Pakistan, female road trip film. And this exec told me to watch a film about this Pakistani heritage woman being taken to Pakistan and forced into a marriage. Right, right. And I was like, what's that got to do with my film? Like, other than Pakistan, what's the connection here? Like, what has that got to do with my film? Absolutely nothing. So I think there are, there are folk in the industry that will hold their hands up and say, I don't know the things I don't know. And, and I found that as a director as well, you know, I've been in, um, so when I did like Molly and Mac, um, the episode I did there, it was called, it was called The Waistcoat and it was around one of the characters who designs clothes. And, um, and I've grown up with my mum making all my clothes. Um, so I, I get all of that sort of side of world and things. And I was able to feed things in to that as a director that, that helped like form the script in a way. 
so they're really willing and open to to hearing all that but there are still very much the people who maybe have been in the job a bit longer than they should have that they they don't really have a circle of of people around them that yeah they're not going to know if they've not even sniffed a samosa in their life they're not going to know are they exactly i mean i i was at the um celtic media festival last year um and i was hosting a, a panel for them on diversity in the celtic regions and I, I kind of like, I was like, I'm going to be really radical here, but I want you all to take a minute to think about what do your circles look like at work, in your personal life, the people that you talk to, do they all look like you? And if they do, you've got a problem being in this industry because you're not going to be creating diverse work if you don't even have a friend that doesn't look like you. If you, and, and this is the thing, what I was saying like right at the start you know, in order to make content, we need to live a life. And in order to live a life, we need to explore the world. We need to have conversations with people that don't have the same life experiences as us. And I think my worry is often with the people right at the top is they've been so kind of entrenched in their worlds that their worlds aren't very diverse. And so they don't realize that they're not doing the things that they're not doing. It's that thing of like, you know, um, when someone doesn't realize how hard racism hits mm -hmm. until they have a friend who's impacted by that racism and then yeah. suddenly it becomes real. Well, Marcus and I had a similar thing um, uh, with one of our very dear friends. I'm not going to name them. Um, and we were talking about France and both me and Marcus were like, I'm not going to France, mate. I don't really want to shoot there. I wouldn't want to shoot a film in, in France. There was just the revelation that like we have to research a place before we go on holiday to see how racist it is. And that's a thing which everyone does. And it was the first time they'd ever heard about it. And they actually started crying, didn't they? I'm so upset. Yeah, yeah, Because oh they had gosh. no idea. It was like, that's just so grim. That's just not, and it's like, well, it's just kind of what that's it our is. Existence. It's just... No, but that, that is it. Like we're, um, but the Celtic Media Festival was in France last year and I had the same worries. I was like, are they going to let me enter the country? Like, are they going to see my hijab and suddenly have a reaction to me? And, and the funny thing is, that um, the festival was in this small town called Camper, and <laughs> they don't speak a lot of English and I don't speak a lot of French. And I went to get some food and the guy working in the place was from Pakistan. <laughs> so I ended up having this conversation and like this mix of Punjabi and Urdu in France. So sometimes it surprises you, but yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, when I when I think about taking certain jobs as well, I do often have to go, hold on, how how safe is it for me? to be in this situation as a visible Muslim woman. Like I was offered a job last year that I turned down for various reasons. One being I told them I can't film in April because I'm fasting all of April and they gave me shoot dates in April. Um, and I was like, well, that's the one thing I told you I can't do. But then I was still willing to do it, but I couldn't find accommodation on the, the budget they had given me. So they offered to put me up somewhere. And when I looked up the place they offered to put me up, it was like a police raid had been there the year before and like it just people were talking about how unsafe it was and I was thinking well you guys as older white men are going to be fine but me as a visible Muslim woman leaving early in the morning coming back later at night that's that's not going to work for me and I just I just went no you know I I don't feel like I will be taken care of I don't feel like I would be safe and so I'm going to have to turn that job down and you did yeah, yeah, I turned it down. But it's sad though, because it shouldn't have to be that way, right? No. Because it's not about the work and it's not about talent at that point. It's about like just general safety.
Yeah, yeah, and 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 just your well being, you know, because the reason I said, well, I can't, I can't shoot while I'm fasting is because I was like, well, you know, you don't want me being exhausted. You want me sharp. I can prep while I'm fasting. That's fine, but you want me shooting after mm. fasting is over. And the shoot was going over like two months anyway, so they could have made that happen, but they didn't. So. And and it was fine. And my agent was just like, she goes, you don't need this job. And that's the, that's the thing about having an agent now as well is I have someone that tells me it's okay to say no, because that's the thing I used to be really bad at. I used to think I have to say yes to everything. And now she's just like, yeah, but why do you need it? And it's it's having someone to give you permission to kind of go, you're worth more than that. You know, when I was coming up and, you know, I've said this before about like Sam Masood and about, you know, other people, right, like um, Nabil Chaudhry, like as a South Asian uh, myself, you can look at people who are like you from your background to um, follow, see how they did it, because that's what you identify, you know, goes back to your earlier point about why it's important to have representation in the industry behind the camera. What's amazing about you um, is that, you know, you're visibly Muslim because you wear the headscarf. And I know um, other filmmakers that are up and coming who also wear the headscarf. And I think that it's great that someone can see, you know, someone like you, you know, with projects in development, with, you know, uh, directing credits under your belt and, and you know, rising, um, doing that. I think it's so important so that people might identify with you. And Oh, yeah, you can't. I mean, if you're if you wear a hijab, you can't hide it. This whole thing of um, being in the industry and being that visible, because I, I, I know of Muslim women who maybe started being visible and then, you know, they have their own reasons for doing so. They decided not to wear their hijab anymore or they, they wear it in a slightly different way. And and sometimes I wonder how much of that is, you know, the the insecurity that comes from being in this industry. Because I feel it sometimes. I ask myself that question of will will I be expected to take this off to to get to a certain point? But like I've always like from day one kind of went, well, this is who I am. You take it or you leave it. And also I very much believe in the things that are mine will be mine. As long as I'm a good person, as long as I honest and authentic. Um, And it's that way of like, even my way of being, I, I don't have different personas. You know, some people levels of themselves that they have with certain people like I'm the same with everyone mostly because I'm like I just don't have the time (laughs) to to curate a version of myself for this and a version of myself for that you know just even coming away from the faith thing just a general human thing we are really bad in this industry at saying I don't know everything or I I have questions that might sound silly and like from day one I've kind of said to myself I would rather ask the silly questions and be myself and do things my way than just do something terribly or feel like I'm I'm being a completely false person um I do stick out like a sore thumb absolutely I have been at I have been at events where you know I can tell people are like looking at me trying to figure out why I'm there in fact I've been asked why I'm there at events (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no way yeah yeah I mean quite early on and, and I've told this story a million times Um, I was an event where I was helping out actually um, and it was a, a, an event for women in the industry and uh, a woman came up to me and was like so what are you doing here and I was like oh well I gave you your name tag before so you know you should know what I'm doing here and she just went she just like honestly like just so casually don't your parents want you to be at home and married and 
you know, with your kids and all of this stuff. And I just kind of was like, no, they're cool. They're fine. And I was with a friend of mine, my my friend Sue, um, who's Chinese. We were probably the only two kind of ethnic women in that room. And uh, afterwards, I just was like, what the hell was that? But then the same woman, like a month later, was asking me for script advice. So, <laughs> so do you know that way? And the thing is, she she probably didn't even think twice about saying what she said. And, and you know, and, and like, I remember being at a festival up here and I was waiting for my sisters because um, they were coming to something that I was part of. And uh, someone came up to me and asked me if I was an Iranian filmmaker. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm from Glasgow. Like, not Iranian at all in any way whatsoever. Yeah, that's the other one. That's yeah. It's like, but but you're at a film thing and you've got a hijab on. You must be from Iran. Yeah. So so you do you do get people that are kind of trying to make sense of why you are in the space that you're in. I think I went from a place of feeling that imposter syndrome, and I still feel it like on a daily basis. To kind of going, well, mm. why shouldn't I be here? If I'm not here, you deserve to be there, man. Yeah. Well, I hope so. If one of us doesn't start doing this, then the door stays closed for other people like us. And 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 that's the thing. Like sometimes we have to be the ones to go like I'll deal with the crap and I'll deal with that feeling uneasy. And I'm you know, like I think my protesting years and my activism at university definitely has been such a huge help at being in the industry. Uh, being within this industry and and being someone that has to sometimes do the educating before being able to actually just do my work and I'm you know I'm insanely involved in a lot of stuff like I get asked to be on panels and on boards and things like that and my inability to say no comes in and I say yes to like almost everything but but part of that comes from going well you know if I can come in and I can feed in and I can I can make you guys open up and do things differently, then I will, you know, I'll I'll do that extra bit of work um mm. to do that. I'm gonna say mashallah to you that you, you know, choose to wear the hijab um and represent so many females in England and everywhere in this industry. It's getting better. I mean there's more of us now. There is more of us. Also, people won't forget you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like people are not gonna forget yeah. who you are. So so it does it does well, help. Hopefully there'll be a future when there'll be loads of hijabs and you'll be like, ah, there's quite a lot of us now. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't mix us up just because of the hijab. It was funny when I was in the, the room for um season two of We Are Lady Parts, uh, that was just before Christmas. There were a few of us in hijab and on the first day, um me and and Fatia, one of the other writers, we were wearing the same color hijab <laughs> by mistake. And afterwards, she's like, "Tomorrow, let's not wear the same color. Let's let's make sure we're in different colors." It was a total. It was a total coincidence, but I was just laughing. Nugget of the week, which is because we consume so much, me and Oz are obsessed with learning, which is where this podcast has come from. We thought we'd throw something back out to the audience. So um, I was wondering if you have anything which has inspired you this week, Raisa, which you can share with the audience. Do you know, I was thinking about this. <laughs> it's like, what has inspired me this week? Last night, I was actually at Scratch Night at the Tron Theatre here in Glasgow. Um, I was invited along to it. It's called Outside Eyes. Um, and the way it was set up was there were kind of four works in progress and you sh you saw one and then they gave you like 10 minutes to sit and answer some questions about it that would then be given to the creatives. It's the first time I've been to it and it was just brilliant. It was like four really different pieces of work 
and and being asked these like really pointed questions about that that sort of work was brilliant so i guess my nugget of the week is get out the house and <laughs> and and go and experience something outside of your direct art form because i think we we start to take our own art form a bit too seriously sometimes and then when we see other people having fun with what they're doing that can kind of remind us why we're doing what we do great uh and how about you Oz? what have you got for us Mine is an app that you can download called CadRage. Uh, and when I was on set, it was invaluable. It was invaluable in prep uh, to use it as a viewfinder because obviously I was trying to figure out proximity of camera to subject. And um, I didn't have one of those fancy ones that you see big Hollywood directors on. I, I really want to do that. I mean, they had it on House of the Dragon, but we never got to oh, the, on the it. the big lens uh, director's viewfinder. Yeah, the big, yeah, the big yeah. sort of like lens viewfinder. But this is the next best thing, so... Um, yeah, CadRage was brilliant to do that. Um, I got the DP to say, so I program all the technical aspects of the camera and the uh, specific lenses, and then it just allowed me allowed me to change focal length so I could just see what I want the audience to see. So CadRage. Um, and for me, it's actually a YouTube video, as it always tends to be. I <laughs> spend a lot of time on YouTube. It's where I've probably <laughs> got 80% of my film knowledge, I'm sure. So yeah, there, there's a filmmaker called David F. Sandberg. So he directed... Uh, the Shazam films and he kind of blew up off the back of a viral short film and he uh, alongside doing all the shorts and stuff he always had a YouTube channel doing tutorials and things like that under the name Pony Smasher and because he's just finished Shazam which is like a big budget DC movie he has done a video called Communicating Your Vision as a Director and it's like 25 minutes long and the whole thing is just about how we uh, like did scenes how we executed them how we communicated them and as he's talking he's literally showing like early stills, early previs, early drawings, all the sorts of things which he did to show how the sequences started off at the very beginning stage, even with like recorded clips of the Zoom calls, which he did with the production people to literally show what he was telling them um, as he's doing it. So it's like really informative. It completely demystifies what it is to create big sequences at literally the highest level. Sounds like a bit of shadowing that does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you can't get on a set, it's these sorts of things are, are really, really important. So um, I'd, I'd say go and check that out if you're interested in working at that level. Cool. I think that brings us to the end of our show. I think it does. And also, are you on socials, Raisa? I am on socials. I'm really easy. It's just my name, Raisa Ahmed on Twitter and then Raisa Ahmed Film on Instagram. Awesome. So if anybody does happen to be listening, get your questions in at thedirectorstakeoutlook.com and we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large and we'll do our best to tell you. Because we want to share this as a resource for you, so do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the Directors Take Podcast and we're also on Twitter on at Directors Take. And just a note on that as well, thank you for all of the engagement we've been getting on social media so far. Like the feedback has been amazing. So do keep sharing. It helps us get the word out even further. And if you really like the show, then leave us a review on whichever platform you get your podcast from. Until next time, keep learning, keep failing and keep the faith. <laughs>